Well, let's try this again. Hello and welcome to the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral Podcast. This is actually my third try recording the intro. The first time my cat Leo started freaking out and then the neighbor during the second take started blowing leaves with the leaf blower. So I figured I should try this again. So welcome to the Spiritual Spiral Of course, I'm Eddie Cohn, the host, the creator of the insanity of the spiritual spiral. And I am thrilled that you're listening. I'm thrilled for today's show. Today, I welcome Evan Beagle, my friend, uh, whom whom I've known for, gosh, I feel like almost 20 years. And I thought it would be a really perfect time to talk to him. And of course, I think this show also marks the beginning of a sort of shift of the direction of the show. I sort of want to explain that before you hear our conversation. Of course, we're still going to talk about tech, and I'm always going to have a fascination and continue to talk about how much technology is impacting the world. You know, people don't talk as much as they used to. I feel like people under the age of 20, the vocal cords, the muscles in their vocal cords are not fully formed because they aren't talking as much as they used to. And this is only going this is only going to continue. People are going to talk less, they're going to send texts more, face-to-face conversations are happening less and less. And I, I do think creatively speaking, the content out there isn't as good as it used to be. Of course there are exceptions, but I don't think creators are able to focus as much on their craft and get better at their craft because the distractions are nonstop. We have more access to more information, more content, more television shows, TV shows, um, podcasts, movies. There's more than ever, but most of it isn't very good. And a lot of it is just getting in the way of creators actually creating. And a lot of this is because of technology and social media. But I wanted to talk to Evan also because I met Evan about 20 years ago when I was in the midst of really starting to pursue my path as a singer and a songwriter, as a musician. So we recorded a couple records together and we spent a lot of hours in the studio. And I thought that Evan would be a really wonderful person to talk to, to to hear about the impact of tech on his life and the creative process. But whenever we weren't recording, when we were taking a break or having lunch, he is also a really big sports fan. And we would watch a lot of basketball. We would talk about basketball. And so I thought it would be really interesting to hear his perspective about Kobe Bryant and the impact that his death has had on his life, or at least his mindset. And that sort of begins my curiosity about what do you value? What brings you meaning? How do you make sense of life. There's there's so much noise happening, but I think it's really taking away from us discovering our purpose and the meaning of life and what we truly value. I mean, maybe you value staring at your phone. Maybe you value just texting your friends as opposed to seeing them face to face. But for me personally, you know, after sitting with Evan for an hour and 45 minutes, and then last night I had a conversation with a friend of mine from college we talk a lot about religion and life and death, and that that po- that podcast should post in probably a few days. When I'm sitting across from people having these discussions about life and death and values and morals and figuring out how to make sense of it all, 
when I'm having these face-to-face conversations, I feel much fuller, more connected, more like a real human being. I feel like technology is turning a lot of people into robots. So I hope this conversation with Evan inspires you. I hope it makes you an active participant in your day-to-day life. I think a lot of us are sort of numbing out all day and becoming very passive. And Evan has always been a really smart guy. I knew that it would be a deeper, more philosophical discussion beyond just technology. So I hope you dig the show. Again, huge thanks to Evan for taking the time to come over here and talk to me. If you do enjoy the show, please reach out on Instagram at Eddie Cohn or on Twitter and say hello. Tell me what you thought about the show. You can visit, um, you can head over to the iTunes store and please give the show a review. Give it a five star. That stuff really helps. Definitely share it with your friends. That's incredibly helpful as well. And you can also visit my Patreon, which is patreon.com backslash Eddie Cohn. You can support the show over there directly. So yeah, that's it for now. Huge thanks to all of you for listening and supporting and being a part of the show. I hope you dig the conversation with Evan Beagle. And of course, it starts with a bit of a focus on sports, but then it certainly goes down a different direction, talking more about technology and finding meaning from life. So as always, thank you so much for listening and supporting the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral Podcast. Well, this is really cool. We drove like five hours to get here, which is awesome. 5.5. Man, you know, you and I can talk for hours about so many different things, but I felt really inspired to reach out because um, the whole Kobe Bryant thing. Yeah. It's just, it's just a shock. I know. I was shocked. I'm still shocked. Yeah, me too. And... And it's, it's, I recorded a podcast yesterday about it. I'll post it soon. And it's complicated. And I think it hits really close to home for all of us. And I'm trying to sort out why. I think because he was so young and he seemed so unstoppable. And the way he died, where they basically just crashed into a mountain and basically... Um, they're gone. They're, they just turn into dust, basically. Yeah. And then his daughter's on there on the on the helicopter, and then the other people on the helicopter were really young and seemed to have a lot going for them in their own personal lives. And I guess there's just two kids that are left. So God only knows what's going to happen to them because their their parents both passed away. And I'm not trying to. <laughs> suddenly this sounds really sad, but I think, you know, my podcast has this sort of technology overtone to it because I think technology is specifically social media is kind of ruining the world and it's, it's ruining people's priorities. So I think I'm feeling as though the podcast over the next few weeks is going to sort of go down this path of our values, what we value, trying to find some meaning to stuff that really makes no sense. So did you see the the memorial last night? I didn't. Okay. I mean, what are you still, are you as 
I mean, what's going through your mind? Yeah, I plan on watching it, by the way. Yeah. I just couldn't watch it last night. I mean, the what's going through my mind is reconciling how here's a person that, like, I didn't even like. Yeah. Like, I, what was confusing at first was to have these feelings about his tragic death that were mourning, you know, mourning for somebody I didn't like. I've never felt myself mourn for an athlete that I didn't like. Like, I felt you know, bad that they died, but not like this. This was like mourning this and it is mourning. And so that's where I, that's where my head's been at is trying to reconcile. Oh, interesting. You know, I really like basketball. I like sports, but I didn't like Kobe Bryant as a basketball player. I thought he was talented and all. (laughs) But that's, but see, you bring up an interesting point that I've, I've thought about. And again, I'm trying to sort of rein all this in. And I don't think people like talking about this, but he wasn't as liked as I think people want people to believe. And I think L.A. sort of is in this. I'm just I'm an I'm curious about why and how we respond to athletes the way we do. And it's it's sort of similarly to social media. I think I, I think it brings out the best and the worst. And you're from Chicago. And I, I mean, I want to know more about why you don't like Kobe Bryant. But I just for an example, you know, I don't remember the person's name, but the person that was leaning over the stands and grabbed that ball that potentially could have ruined the game or that ruined the game for the Chicago Cubs. I forget his name. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. That poor guy. Yeah. yeah so I... well, my, my cousin worked with him and apparently he had to move out of the city oh, because yeah. he was getting death threats. And I think about the Chicago Bears kicker last year, the year before, who misses yeah, that Cody Parkey. Cody Parkey. Brutal. He, but what's brutal is that. The response on Twitter. Oh yeah, that Twitter feed was. It was. It's one of the most brutal, most brutal comments I've ever read in social media. Were in that in that feed. Yeah, the Cody Parkey feed is going to go down in history. Is it's fucked up. It's it's. It, but it's not just. It's just. <laughs> I think sports has this way of bringing people together, and then making people become animals. Yeah, and I'm curious. You know, well, first of all, why didn't you like Kobe Bryant? Well, not for any reason that is meaningful. Okay. <laughs> the only the only the only reason I didn't like him is because, you know, growing up, I watched Michael Jordan, and Michael Jordan was my idol. Um, I saw many, many, many games of Michael Jordan playing as I was growing up, and so when Co- Kobe came into the league, there was this conversation: Well, who's who's going to be the next Michael Jordan? Like, who is there ever going to be another Michael Jordan? And Kobe, when he came in. You could tell that he was inspired growing up by the play of Michael Jordan from his style of, oh, of, of play. Like he was almost like a, it's like it would, would have been really easy to say that's going to be the next Michael Jordan because of his style and the way he carried himself and his facial expressions and his mental toughness, all this stuff. And so that's what I didn't like about him because he could conceivably be the next Michael Jordan. And I was hell bent on how there would never be another Michael Jordan. No one will ever be like him. Nobody will ever take take over a game like Michael Jordan did. Nobody will be able to play defense like Michael Jordan did. No one would be as smart of a player as Michael Jordan was. But here was this guy, so I didn't like him for that. The controversial, you know, pieces of his career. You know, I I don't I, I don't know. I didn't spend too much time thinking about that. Just just. 
like a sports fan. Same with Tiger Woods. Like I didn't spend a whole lot of time thinking about his personal issues. You know, I just wanted him to come back and play golf, like selfishly. Like the only thing I care about Tiger Woods really is his golf swing and how he performs on the golf course. So I, those are compartmentalized feelings in a way. So with Kobe, I never really spent any energy thinking about the things he was dealing with personally. You know, I was just being a sports fan. Well, and it's, it's, it's interesting <laughs> to me. I wonder like if we give athletes a little bit more of a break because they are so great at their sport that we don't care how they are in their personal life. And I heard that he was challenging to play with. He certainly was accused of being a big time ball hog. Yeah. And he wanted, I think I remember him demanding a trade if they didn't get Pal Gasol or something. And then the league, they end up trading Kwame Brown, I think, and get, and somehow get Pal Gasol. So I, and of course what happened in Colorado. So he was a very polarizing figure. Very polarizing. Yes. And Similarly to this guy in Chicago getting death threats, the woman who accused him of sexual um, assault, I think Twitter was around, but social media wasn't around, although Twitter could be argued as being social media. And she was getting death threats. And just like, how dare you accuse this, this person of doing this terrible act? Gosh, just sports does sort of bring people together in a beautiful way. But it can be really polarizing, and, and it, can be, it can turn people into animals. And I was even watching the Conor McGregor fight a couple weeks ago, and fuck, talk about a brutal sport. And people, oh, yeah. it's just, it's. I'm trying to wrap my mind around all of this. Yeah, no, me too. I, I, I spend time thinking about it, but you know, just to close the loop on my Kobe feelings, that the confusing part is why am I so upset that he passed away. But the more I think about it, the more I appreciate the fact that I felt emotionally connected enough to somebody that I didn't even like to have feelings that were strong when he passed away. And it just made me appreciate the emotional connection that some of these players can have with people, even if you don't like them. And so that that was that's what I was paying attention to, you know, when when that happened, where those feelings coming up going, wow, I'm actually upset about this. Like if LeBron James passed away tomorrow, to be honest, I'd be shocked if I had these feelings. Yeah, he's, he's a polarizing figure in different ways, but I don't know. Something about Kobe passing away was different. I agree with you, yeah. and and I, I think it's a combination of how it happened. It, it reminds me of Princess of Princess Diana a little bit. It's just it's yeah. so sudden, sudden. You're you're not expecting it, right? Um, he's so young. He just won an Academy Award. He had a lot of things going for him. He's also, this is something that doesn't happen in sports. He's been in Los Angeles this whole time. Yeah, I, I agree. That is a that is a key piece right there. When an athlete stays yeah. in one city, similarly to Michael Jordan, I know he went to Washington towards the end, but he primarily was in Chicago. Yeah. But when an athlete stays in one city, and we don't see that anymore, you really feel like he's part of your family. Absolutely. So, yeah, and that's why, you know, the LeBron comment, not that I wish <laughs> any ill on the man. I mean, he's he's great and all, but yeah, he definitely is not that player. He's one of the, he's going to go down as one of these star players that did not stay in one city and did move around and did win in other places and I don't know, some people take issue with that. I think I take issue with it just because of the way I grew up. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm from Cleveland. I certainly took issue with it when he went to Miami. The funny thing was, though, is that as pissed off as Clevelanders were, yeah. again, this goes, this goes, as angry as people may have been about who Kobe Bryant was and what he, in, in his personal life, if they bring you a championship, you don't care. Yeah. It's crazy how that is more important than however they are as a human being. Yeah. And I, I mean, I will never forget the day Kyrie Irving hit that shot and the Cavs finally won. I mean, it was it was seriously one of the greatest days of my life. Yeah. And that's crazy to think about. Yeah, because you feel like you've won when they win. Yeah. That's <laughs> you're mirroring we are mirroring that feeling. That's why we're so into it. You know, I went to, in December, I went to Lambeau Field for a Green Bay Packers, Chicago Bears game. And it was like a bucket list thing. Like I had the opportunity to go. So I got on a plane and I met some buddies there and went. And that community, like I now have a completely different perspective and appreciation about the Green Bay Packers. And that town and the way that that football team and that, that town or that, like, that's that town. It is, I was never really into college sports. So I get there are college towns where their college team is their thing, but because I was never into college sports, I don't really have a connection to it, but I've been into the NFL my whole life and the bears and the Packers classic rivals. And I would just fashion hating the Packers, just like every other Chicago fan, but going there and being in that environment and tailgating with those people and having that whole experience helps you understand why people love their teams and love their players yeah, as much as they love family members. Oh, I, people are grieving right now as if a family member passed away. And again, yes. I think it's, we've seen him and, and maybe this gives me a little bit of hope because I, I sort of sometimes believe that especially because of social media, either you're good or you're bad. It, it sort of is dumbing human beings down to either you're good or bad. That's it. There's nothing complicated about a human being. And I think we're obviously very convoluted and complex and there's a lot going on. And I don't think people are good or bad. It's, it's more complex than that. But this does sort of give me hope because I feel like People don't know how to forgive anymore. And if you fuck up, then your whole life is over. And, and even like the more famous you are, you cannot make a mistake. So the fact that he clearly has been polarizing, he clearly made some mistakes. The way that people have responded to this terrible tragedy has really been just jaw. It's been jaw dropping. I've, I've just been in shock. Yeah, me too. Did you watch the game last night? I didn't. I, I just felt, you know, you should watch just the beginning at least. It felt to me as though it was one of the most challenging things LeBron James has ever done. Yeah. Giving that speech, these players playing, putting together this montage of videos, and, and it just really, I don't, know, I don't know how to make sense of it all. And yeah. it certainly makes me wonder if people are going to make different decisions, different choices. If it really, it just feels as though if it can happen to him, it can happen to anybody. Well, yes. I mean, I think that's, that's something that incidents throughout our lives 
whether it's something like this or it's a major weather event, an earthquake, or somebody down the street dies suddenly that you knew and spoke to, there are points in your life where your mortality comes into focus. And this is one of those times where, and that's what can start having people make different decisions is that when something like this occurs, you realize that today could be your last day and you just don't realize it. And when I think about that concept, much like on a smaller level, I've thought about things where like, for example, if at work, you know, I got a pep talk from somebody at work one time, a, a pep talk okay. at work sometime a couple of years ago. And you know, I was having trouble prioritizing everything I had to do. And her uh, comment to me was that, well, a really easy way to decide is that if what you're doing is not in alignment with whatever your goals are, you probably shouldn't do it. And that comment stuck with me because it really helped me to learn to prioritize and ask myself before I do something if it's in alignment with my goals before I do it. And I think the same thing can apply to anything in life. We get on autopilot. We forget that we're breathing. We forget to eat. I mean, we don't talk to people enough. We don't appreciate, stop to smell the flowers, all that stuff. So when an incident, when an incident like this occurs, it makes people stop and think about those things. Yeah. And if you happen to have a connection to the person that actually passed away, you will be one of those people that stops and starts thinking about that stuff. Not everybody will. You have to have some, I think because people die every day and there's tragedies every single day and people don't care. Well, I said this yeah. a couple of weeks ago where I, I'm curious how this is going to play out because I mean, I, I think one of the biggest tragedies of our current state of affairs is social media and, and cell phones and how addicted everybody are, everybody is and people are just nonstop staring at their phones and people's priorities are completely out of whack. And, and I do wonder if, and I said this, sometimes it takes something really tragic for people to change their perspective. And it's sad, like it's, it's sad that that's the case, but that I'm hoping that if anything positive, and I even said, maybe TMZ, I, I, I wish LeBron James and somebody would, announce to their millions of followers, we have to stop and boycott TMZ. Because the fact that TMZ was the first publication that found out that Kobe Bryant died, and they announced it 20 minutes later. Imagine being Vanessa or any family member and finding out through TMZ that your your husband died and not through a phone call. I mean, I remember seeing the press conference and the sergeant was so pissed off because apparently somebody had announced that his whole family was on the helicopter at first and they found, oh, it wasn't his whole family. And I just, I think there's so much that is wrong with. Yeah. It's that 24 hour news cycle scenario. That's, that's what does that. And yeah, that sucks to have to find out that way is just completely, um, man, there was a, there was a movie that came out it's called Night Watcher, Night or Night Crawler. Ah, I'm blank. Ah, I can't remember. Anyway, it's 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 kind of about this subject where you know these journalists wanting to be the first to report mm, something, well, yeah. and that goes for something tragic, for example, or some gruesome, grisly. Yes, it was. It was. Um, gosh, it Night was, Crawler. Or, ah, was it with? Um, I know. Yes. I'm sorry. I don't lose your train of thought because, but now my brain is going to that place of what yeah. the fuck was that movie called? 
Anyway, it's it's that thing. It's the, it's the 24-hour uh, news cycle and social media as this, you know, very addictive communication device, essentially what it is. And yeah, that stuff makes incidents uh, roll out in interpretive ways <laughs> that, yeah. that shouldn't, it shouldn't be like that. But those people obviously care more about getting the story first than a phone call to a family member to let them know what happened. I mean, that's terrible. I didn't know that that happened, but that's, yeah, I'm not surprised, but that is just, no, it, it, I think, yeah, just to me, I think that's why I'm so intrigued about talking about, um, Kobe and, and just so many different layers of the story, because to me it does mirror just human beings. And, and, and I think one thing that I remember, you know, you and I in the studio and we, if we're taking a break, we'd watch basketball. And I, I think another, and I brought this up a couple of weeks ago, there is a lot of my musician friends are big sports fans. Yeah. And I think it takes years to get really good at playing the guitar. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm in the myth. I've been writing a book for two years. Like it's been two, all of my free time, creatively for the last I've put all my music aside everything aside to write this stupid fucking book I mean I'm kidding I think it's really <laughs> great and it's funny but it it takes and it may take another two years to get it published yeah I mean this stuff takes time yeah and I and I think that's what's so tragic about Spotify and social media is and I talk about this a lot like people have you seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood yeah I mean this these these Creative pursuits take years, yeah. and now people can just like download a song for free. I mean, it takes years for you two to put an album together, and people can just get it for free. <laughs> and what's so fucked up to me, I remember when you two put out an album for free like seven, eight years ago because they realized that people weren't paying for music anymore, and then people were actually pissed at you too like how dare you give me your album in my ipod without asking me first but but yet you're stealing all this fucking music for free anyway it was like you can't fucking win so i my, my point is is that i mean i've got a couple points but i think a lot of the reason why people really connected to kobe i guess before we get into the artist thing is i think we respect the amount of work that it takes to become fantastic at, at basketball that is a fantastic point. I mean, yeah, that's that's a great way to to explain. I mean, that that validates things that I think about all the time by myself that I don't necessarily talk to people about. So they say, well, how can you like this person because they did this, this, and this, or they said this, this, and that, and you know, the comment that I really don't care about Tiger Woods' personal life, I just care about his golf swing. Well, the reason why I just care about his golf swing is because what inspires me is what he had to do to put himself in that position to be able to compete like that. I just, that is so admirable. It's the same thing with rock stars, you know, when they get up there, like, I mean, yeah, I'm a huge fan of their music, but they could be like the biggest freaking asshole ever. I mean, I met Rush one time and Neil Peart was the only person that didn't say hello and like wouldn't talk. And I know he was like this introvert and all, but before that day, he was like my idol. And after that day, I was like really bummed. Yeah. Now, when he passed away, I was very sad. So that was, you know, this is like two very, very recent incidents that are similar in a way for me. Somebody that I didn't like after a certain period of time because they didn't say hi to me. And so, 
No, it's, it's so, <laughs> so, it's so anyway, silly. I, I was crushed. Uh, you know, I was completely crushed. But anyway, anyway, I forgot. I forgot what my point was. But well, just the work. The, 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 yeah, the yeah. work uh, that Neil Peart or anybody to get to that level, the work ethic that they have to have, and the mental focus and the commitment. Those are the admirable qualities. I just wish they could do that, you know, and be better people sometimes. But also, I don't have the facts. <laughs> I mean, yeah. the media media will tell you all kinds of stuff. Like, I don't have the facts. So I've learned to not have an opinion when I don't have the facts. So there's there's that, too. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good lesson, actually, because I feel like it's almost better um, – to just keep your mouth shut if you really don't know what you're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. But people are so <laughs> inclined to share. And I, I reported something where I'm struggling with this idea of freedom of speech. <laughs> I know that's so fucked up to think about, but sometimes I, here, here's my last point with, with Kobe Bryant. Um, well, I, you know, actually I recorded a podcast a few days ago about this, but I'm trying to think of another way to explain my point. I guess my point is, is that, Okay, here's my point. I'll use this as an example. Within an hour of when Kobe Bryant passed away, a Washington Post reporter, do you know the story? Uh, keep going. She tweeted, she tweeted a link within an hour of him, of us finding out that he died. Within one hour, tweets a link to a Daily Beast article that goes in detail of the rape trial 16, 17 oh, years no, ago. I don't know this story. So she ends up getting suspended for about a few days. And of course, there's tons of backlash, but then there are people out there saying, well, no, this is good that she posted this or tweeted this because this is something that we should be remembering now. And it's really kind of fucked up because I don't think you should be allowed to just say whatever you want whenever you, whenever you want. I mean, to, to, to have the audacity to tweet that within an hour of this man dying shows no sympathy, shows no thoughtfulness. And, and so people are then emotionally manipulated during that hour. And then people are talking about it for days. Not that it shouldn't be a void. And I mean, the New York Times and other writers have very thoughtfully described that Kobe was a pretty polarizing figure. But her intent wasn't to be sympathetic or thoughtful. Her intent was to get attention and do whatever I can to get people to go down this rabbit hole of having this sort of disgusting conversation in the midst of a tragic death. And, and I think that, to me, is what's wrong with our culture in many reasons, is we all get manipulated to go down these rabbit holes, and, and we don't know people's intentions. We don't know what's true or false anymore. Instead of just taking the facts, yeah. digesting the facts, yeah. and having a conversation about the facts, people are having whatever DMs or tweets or whatever about God only knows what. And that, to me, is what sort of creates this chaotic, can, where the people just aren't connected. Yeah, I agree. But I, 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 do, I do place accountability on people for allowing that to happen. Hmm. So that's where the challenge and freedom of speech comes in. So, I mean, people, they can say stuff, true, false, indifferent. But if a person is going to take that as fact, based on a perception that they're choosing to create from what they're hearing, I mean, that is their, that's also their freedom and their choice. And I think most people 
make bad decisions in those scenarios. And all social media does and the media does is amplify the fact that people just make bad decisions about beliefs all the time. They claim that they believe certain things. And when you ask them what their belief is based on, they oftentimes can't give you an answer. And that is crazy to me. And I, so when I look at social media as a thing and whether it's good or bad or indifferent, you know, I have, I have two kids and, you know, I have to observe their developing relationship with social media. I think to myself that it's on us to make the right decisions about what to consume in terms of communication, which is what's, what those devices are. So in order to avoid the noise, so to speak, I tailor my feeds in a certain way. You know, I make them look a certain way and I take in communications that I'm willing to read and soak in, but I've made really intentional decisions. And when I see something that I don't want to take in or read, it's gone. So I'm controlling what's being fed in my direction. And if I just happen to be watching the news, for example, or watching some media cycle, I've already got it perceived as all theater before I even sit down to watch it at this point. So when I'm watching it, I'm just observing in a sense, and I get annoyed after a period of time and I'll turn it off and go on to something else. But any information that I do get, which is random and that I don't get to choose what it is because it's a new cycle and they're just going to feed you stuff. I have a reaction to it, but I don't form opinions anymore on things that I don't have the facts about. Like I used to, I used to do that, but I, I don't. And so back to your point, which is, you know, the way that it manipulates folks emotionally, I think that's a really important concept because I think people are guilty of allowing themselves to be emotionally manipulated. Yeah, I think that to me is the hidden tragedy, toxicity of social media. I mean, you know, Facebook and Instagram obviously have people that are controlling, you know, pornography. They don't want nudity. Sure. They don't want... Uh, some kid, you know, there's a new Netflix movie about some kid who's like torturing cats and he ends up getting caught. I mean, obviously they don't want like violence and nudity and pornography on their platform. Right. But the emotional time-wasting manipulation where people's brains are going down rabbit holes, they're not controlling that. There, there are no gatekeepers for that. I mean, and that almost makes, it's almost impossible to gatekeep that. Yeah, you can. I don't <laughs> think you can. No. Yeah. But, and I think... And I think about this parallel a lot. You know, when we were kids, there were three channels. It was NBC, CBS, and ABC. You're in Chicago. You guys read the Chicago Tribune. I'm reading The Plain Dealer. My parents are. And we all come together. Typically, all have read the same resource. Or we all saw Peter Jennings. And so we're all pretty much getting our news and information from one source. And now, and again, I... I'm confused because I love the fact that I can record a podcast. I mean, it's, I see the hypocrisy there that here I am confused about freedom of speech, but here I am recording a podcast. But when you have people that come together for dinner and let's say they want to talk about some political issue, God only knows where they're getting their information from. And, and, and there's so many blogs and people that are just 
try. And then I don't know if I can even trust Fox or CNN anymore because they're really doing what they can to just get your attention because they know most people are staying at home watching Netflix all day. Yeah. So that's right. So back to the, back to the point about the emotional manipulation. I know that Facebook and Instagram can't necessarily police that, but I think that is one of the, the biggest hidden calamities because people are emotionally getting manipulated and affected in this stupid fucking quote unquote like feature that Facebook and Instagram added to me changed the shape of the world. Yeah, absolutely. I wish we could argue about it, but no, I'm kidding. It's just, I think about that a lot. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's not, it, no, we, (laughs) we, (laughs) I mean, argue about its, its use, its, um, its place. I mean, if, I mean, it's not going away. We know this. So it's come and it's here to stay. And it's now part of our lives, much like a telephone is or some other utility. I think watching the kids, watching my kids interact with it. It's really just my older one at this point is I'm just very curious. It's interesting. Yeah. I was very curious about that. Wait, how old are your kids? So my oldest is 14 and my youngest is nine. So when did you allow your 14 year old to Does he have a smartphone? Yeah, he's got a smartphone. He got that when he was 11 years old. And that's when we started allowing him to use a piece of social media that doesn't, I think it exists anymore, but it's called Musical.ly. Okay. Um, And it was just, it was for kids and kids would post music videos. You know, just all it did was have you film a video and put music to it and post it. So kids were posting videos of themselves, dancing, making you know, these cool little effects and things like that, all music video oriented. And then after that, it was uh, Snapchat. More recently, it's been Instagram. And we monitor the way that he uses it. And we watch his behavior very, very carefully. And if we don't see anything alarming, then we don't do anything. You know, What in your mind is alarming? Or what would be an example of that or what would make you worried or i would be worried if for example my older son didn't want to have a conversation with us about (laughs) anything yeah that would be worrisome like if he rejected an effort to communicate that would be worrisome he's a straight a student so he's set that expectation all by himself and so if suddenly he starts getting bad grades that would be worrisome if he says something that is not in alignment with our values or just our general day-to-day good citizen type lives, that would be worrisome. I think those are the main things because all that, all those roads lead to one place. There's, there's something going on and we don't know what it is. Um, we will audit his device from time to time and he knows that we're going to do that. So just basically just get rid of it and you can't use it for like no, no. Mean? What I mean is look through his text messages, uh, look okay. through. Yeah. And, you know, we're we're not too pushy about that because we want him to feel like he has his privacy. We want him to feel like that we trust him. But he has to earn our trust and he knows that and he's done a really good job of that. So he's in it. You know, it's part of his life. Yeah. And he talks about his friends. He communicates with his friends. Like he doesn't use Apple text message very much, for example. They just send messages to each other through Snapchat and Instagram. No, it's interesting how that's, yeah. it seems like that's how people communicate. That yeah. under the age of 20, they, they don't send texts. They just yeah. DM through Instagram. Exactly. So 
And, you know, these phones, there are, I don't know if you know this, but uh, this year, this school year was the first year where they banned all the devices from the classroom, essentially, school grounds. Like you can have it in your bag, but it can't be out or anything like that. And there was a lot, initially, there was a lot of um, anxiety about how that was going to go because the entire Santa Clarita Valley, all the districts implemented it. And it's been great. Like they, you know, they were able to detach very, very quickly and pay attention to other things very, very quickly. And now it's just, no, it's just, that's normal life. You don't get to use your devices in school and they have no problem with it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, it wasn't a big deal. I remember being a kid, if I felt sick or had to go to the nurse's room or something, you know, there's a phone at the main desk yeah. You either call your mom or dad at work or home and you figure it out. Right. But there is this sort of, oh my God, what do I do without my phone for two hours? Yeah. It's. What if somebody can't reach me? Yeah. I know. It's, it's It feels worse than losing your wallet for some strange reason. I remember when losing your wallet was bad and how bad of a feeling that was. Definitely. But losing the phone, it's, forgetting it in the house when you're in your car. Oh my God, I can go back and get my phone. It's like, and then, you know, people walking, facing the phone. That's the kind of stuff that I'm really trying to monitor my own behavior. It's like, I, I've caught myself doing that a couple times and yeah, <laughs> it's making me pivot really quickly. And because we talk about it in our family a lot, you know, it rubs off on the kids. So I think we're, I think we're doing a good job with the kids and bringing them up in this world of social media so far and Hopefully, that, hopefully that, I mean, that it could change in like three months for all I know. Hopefully it won't. Yeah. How about you? And how about your nine-year-old? Um, is he, he doesn't he, have, he, he just gets to play video games. He doesn't have, he's not on social media or anything. It'll be, you know, Noah was 11. So my nine-year-old, he'll, uh, he'll be 11 and we'll probably give him a phone at that point and yeah. go through the same monitoring process. Well, it's, it, well, it's scary also, I think sometimes because you can monitor, but you, you can't monitor what other people are posting. No, you cannot. And that that's very scary. And that's, you know, I think it's this, weird. Go ahead. No, I'll just say this to that point, this goes back to my comment about people don't take, don't have accountability and responsibility for the way that they're connecting emotionally to this stuff. And so with the kids and not being able to control what they're going to see, because some other kid is going to post something that's like bad and not good. Like I'm already really confident that my son knows when he reads that, how to compartmentalize it, no matter how disturbing that it is. I can't tell you like how it got to that point, but I'm really proud of the fact that he can make that decision on his own and is accountable for making that decision. Hmm. And I hope that the same thing happens with my younger one. I totally get, and I see, you know, I'm around parents with kids all the time and I see how parents struggle with their kids behavior. And I don't know if it's the parents or if it's in the kid's DNA or some combination or both, but there's some really, really scary moments in the way that parents relate with their kids that I've witnessed at things as benign as birthday parties and other events, things like that, or the way that a child will talk to their parents. 
Um, like my son's best friend, for example, like when I hear him speak to his parents, I'm like, if my kid ever spoke to me that way, yeah. like we'd have to have like a three hour like conversation <laughs> and like he would have to like lose some privileges and he would have to. And I just don't understand when I see that or witness that and how, when it's, I don't know if it's being handled or not, but I see it repeatedly, which tells me it's not being handled. But, well, and here I am sitting in judgment of these people. Actually, I don't want to use the word judgment because I think I'm being too hard on myself to call myself judgmental for talking about this. It's, it's observing, it's observing these people's yeah. behavior. It goes to the, again, I know I, I sound, I probably sound like a fascist or something, but it feels as, no, but people just want to do whatever they want. They think they can do anything. And of course we love America and we love our liberties, being able to say or do whatever we want. And I think it goes without saying to not kill somebody and not go rob a bank and obviously don't drink and drive. But when you're dealing with somehow I, when you're dealing with dopamine and getting attention, I mean, that's why I point the finger at the stupid freaking like, even adults become addicted with getting a like because they're not getting the dopamine in their day-to-day lives. And the amount of dopamine that you get from Instagram far exceeds any amount of dopamine that you can get unless you're like a drug addict or you're a sex addict having sex like, you know, every hour or something. You can't get dopamine like you can without, you know, doing an actual hard drug. You can't get it from anything but Instagram. (laughs) So it's because it feels so good, people are going to keep using it and they'll just say or do whatever they want. And I think it's almost like parents, they want to be their friend. They're forgetting this idea of actually parenting and this idea of just letting kids do whatever they want. I, I don't think that's... And it kind of goes back to this tweet that this reporter tweeted. You know, I, it just feels... People just want to do whatever they want without consequences. And they don't think that their behavior, although not illegal, is still potentially rude or... You know, just for example, I was at a yoga class five, six days ago. It's pretty busy. And I'm in the front row and it's it's kind of mat to mat. And sometimes you're leaning over somebody else's mat in warrior three or like half moon or something. And I know I'm insane. I know I'm a germaphobe. But the guy behind me is leaning over my mat and sweat is just dripping all over my mat in warrior three. And so I turn him and he doesn't wipe up. And one of my teachers like five years ago said something like, look, if you're over somebody else's mat, you sweat all of it, you, you know, you, you fucking wipe up. And so he doesn't wipe up. I turn around and I say, dude, you just, you just like went all over my, my freaking mat. It, you know, it's common courtesy to wipe up. And the guy next to me is my friend. He obviously is like laughing his ass off. But, you know, do I not say anything? Or do, is it my issue or am I a dick for saying something? Is he a dick for sweating all over my mat and not wiping up? And, and I mean, Well, he could. Yeah, he couldn't control the fact he was sweating all over your mat, but he could control the fact that he was wiping up. So he's a dick. Yeah. And it's good that you said something because maybe the next time he'll wipe up. Now, I wasn't there, so right. I don't know how you addressed him or, you know, maybe you were really curt. I don't know. No, I mean, but it's just when you say, yeah, it's like if when you say something to somebody in that situation, it's hard to not come off as being, you know, 
perceived as a dick because how can you be nice about it? And you say it with a smile on your face, you're annoyed, you know, yeah. and it's, and this person's clueless and that, it, that's annoying. So I know I don't answer your question. I don't, I don't think you're a dick at all uh, <laughs> for, for telling that person, you know, you should wipe up your sweat. Yeah. You're, 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 this is the issue of people being able to do whatever they want. Yes. I think they can do whatever they want. And I, I just don't, I don't think this is any different than it was 20 years ago, pre, pre social media. I, I just think that it's amplified as a result of that. And people's forums for communicating at a large level are amplified. There's more of them. There's more opportunities for that. Whereas, you know, the reporter who's going to make a stupid decision about reporting this or that probably wouldn't have had a forum to actually act on it back then because you just didn't have enough mediums to be heard. And now you have all these mediums and it's just going to be hard to control what everybody says. So, I mean, if you write on social media that you want to assassinate the president of the United States, you're liable to get a phone call or something's liable to happen. So you can't say anything. That's the real irony. It's, it's It's not that you can't say anything, which is ironic, but you can say all kinds of stuff that is perceived as benign, but it affects people emotionally. And how benign is that? I mean, that can be serious in certain cases. We've proved it. People have like committed suicide over getting the wrong text message. I mean, well, that's the story that I've heard. I don't know what the facts are, yeah, but I've heard yeah. the stories yeah. that people, you know, have been moved to suicide by a friend who was saying mean things and stuff like that. It's, it's pretty crazy how that can occur. Um, yeah. Speaking of not to bring back the athlete thing, but I just watched that documentary on Netflix about Aaron Hernandez. Yeah, people t- tell me to, to watch it. <sighs> Man, okay, I won't, I won't spoil yeah. it, but holy cow. I mean, talk about a... I mean, my perception of what happened in that story um, from like the media and when it was happening didn't even scratch the surface as to everything that went down with this person and every person that he interacted with. I mean, it is you should watch it. I'm not going to talk about it because you haven't watched it. But yeah, it was really interesting. There's another scenario where an athlete, you know, achieves this huge star status with people. I mean, he's not alive, obviously, but yeah, the way that he died and his whole leading up to that was just unbelievable. It's funny, and this kind of, I'm thinking about this as you're telling the story about the media and we had a perceive we had a perception about Aaron Hernandez. Let's just say ten years ago. When people went to work, they worked, and then they came home and they read the news, watched the news, or connected with their family to try and get like the facts. And now when people come home, their home life is even busier than their work life because their kids are on video games or Snapchat or Instagram or your wife is looking at God only knows what or maybe they're you have to write a book or you're doing some music. I mean it's just like your life is too busy now and too distracted. So you don't have the time to actually dive in, get the facts, read the articles. You you know, you're just sort of you have 10 minutes to get information and hopefully it's 
factual. Hopefully it's giving you the big picture. But you're right. I'm, people are telling me after seeing the Aaron, Her- Aaron Hernandez documentary, they're all saying, oh, my God, I had no idea. Yeah. It's like, well, why didn't, why didn't you? And I'm not saying that that person could have done a better job of getting the information. The media withheld it. Yeah. I mean, they. I don't know if they withheld it or if it just wasn't able to compete with whatever else was going on in the media at the Hmm. time, or they reported this stuff and nobody read the articles. I I mean, I really have no idea. I don't know if it's that the information didn't exist back then, but when you do see the documentary and realize the complexities of the story, it goes on for so many years and spans across so many years. So there's no way they could have reported on all that at the time. Like it had to be uncovered and dug up and, just a lot of complexities, a lot of relationships in his past, you know, that led to all this and just crazy, crazy sequences of events. And then all paired up with this whole thing in the NFL of athletes having brain damage from playing the sport and what the side effects of that brain damage is. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. Like how it all unfolds is really unbelievable. I was I was shocked when I watched it. I'll have to check it out for yeah. sure. Yeah. Two things I want to ask you about. You don't really use social media. Well, it's it's interesting. I I was using social media probably a little bit more than I am now. I want to say like ten years ago or so. Um, around the time when I was teaching, I was friending students when I was teaching, um, some of which I've kept connections with on social media, but many that I ended up deleting because there was a period of time then where I thought, you know, it's, it's, it's probably not very good for me to be mixing my relationships on social media with all of these students. You know, it's just, I was starting to get like hundreds and hundreds of students and they would ask me questions and all this stuff. And then there was a moment where via Facebook private message, one of my students confided in the fact that she was being blackmailed by another teacher and they were in a personal relationship with each other. Yeah. And it was just, it was bad. And because of that, I had to go to my HR department and I had to report that this was happening immediately. The first thing I did is I called my dad, he's a lawyer and his advice was go right to HR and give them all the information you have like tomorrow. So that's what I did. I'm just like, here, this is what this student sent me. And um, I don't know how to respond. And they're like, great, that's what we're here for. And we'll we'll take it from here. And they did. And it, you know, it was, it went down this whole thing, bunch of rabbit holes, a couple of teachers got fired, you know, it was, it was a whole, it was a whole thing. But from that point forward, I started to compartmentalize a little bit more what my activity on social media was going to be. And I decided that the only stuff I would ever put on social media was stuff that I wanted my kids to know about me when Hmm. they're growing up and becoming adults. So they'd have something to look back at if they ever wanted to know, Oh, what was dad doing like this year when I remembered this and that kind of thing. And what kind of stuff was he, you know, cause they post stuff. Yeah. I say they was really only my older son, my younger son. He doesn't, he doesn't have social media, but he posts stuff within his game chats and things like that, which is a whole other conversation. But, but anyway, um, no, it doesn't post a whole lot, but he reads and his friends post and that kind of thing. And he sees my post and now he interacts with them, which I think is really cool. But more recently, I've actually started to use social media a little bit more, Instagram specifically, because I feel like I'm 
missing out on opportunities to share. It's going to sound so silly. Share photographs with people that I interact with, for example, every single day that I wasn't willing to share before. And it could be something, something as simple as just a picture of myself. Like I was posting pictures of gear up there, for mm-hmm. example. And that's all I would post. Like I didn't want to post any pictures of me and my family because I had like this thing about, ah, I should keep that private or no, I shouldn't. But now relatively recently, I've just started to kind of let go of that whole concept, but I'm still being very selective of what I put up on social media. And it's all governed by this idea that I would like my kids to be able to look back on this and have positive things to look back on. I'm thinking about a concept here. I've made this decision to mute and unfollow people in Los Angeles on my Instagram. This is very specific. Well, I'll tell you why. If I don't see them, like, I don't want to just see them through their Instagram page. I, because that's not real. They're curating what they want people to perceive of their life. Like, if I'm not actually seeing this person once every six months for who knows what, then they're not, I, I don't care to just see their Instagram world. Yeah. Does that make any sense? Yeah. It's makes I, sense. like, I don't, that's your, and that's your choice. And yeah. Your I know yeah. it's weird. I just, because I think I'm realizing you don't really know. It's already hard to, to maintain friendships just in your day to day life. Um, without social media. And, and although you think that the social media somehow makes it easier, and I guess it could easily be argued that it does. I don't know if you're really getting the real person. And, and then if you're only texting and DMing through Instagram, you're not really, I mean, here I am moving my hands. I mean, that is, that is actually a physical feature to our conversation right now. I use my hands when I talk. Right. And I, I, don't want to lessen somebody's existence or my relationship with them by just dwindling them down to what I see of them on their Instagram page. I don't, it's very thought out and probably too thought out, but I don't want to subject myself to somebody's existence only through social media. Yeah. I, I, I totally get that concept. I think for, I think for me, I, like those people that you're referring to, I, I never really give it any thought. But when I think about it now, it's it's like, man, I guess if they weren't connected on social media, like I never even think about these people. <laughs> like they would, it would like the number of people that I think about are, I mean, it's not a very large number. I mean, these are people that I interact with like every day. I have two families. I got my home family. I got my work family. There's no more hours in the day. So when I'm like reading social media, the those people that you're referring to, I have no real feelings about. So if they were just gone, yeah, I would never think about them. So then that makes me think: Is this taking up like useless space within my thought process, and I just don't know it? And so as you're telling me that you're doing this, I'm like, well, should I do that? Well, then my feed would get pretty. Uh, it'd be like nothing on there. I know <laughs> there'd well, be like nothing to read. And would I actually reach out to more people as a result of not having that stimulus? I don't know. I think I'd probably be bummed that I don't have anything to, I get some entertainment out of it. I guess it comes down to getting some entertainment out of it. Like when I see things by people that I know I'm never going to see and they post something, I'm just like, Oh, 
That's interesting. And like I said, if they post something that like bothers me emotionally, it's that's gone. Like that, that again, that I, I'm unsubscribed, hidden, whatever, whatever, <laughs> yeah. whatever you call it. But that criteria that you just mentioned is interesting to think about <laughs> because I would not be thinking about these people anyway. Yeah. And, and that's okay. I'm, I'm curious because you're, I get the sense that I'm thinking about somebody's projections through their Instagram feed and I'm not seeing them ever. I'm not seeing them face to face. I'm not having coffee with them or going to a yoga class with them, but I am seeing whatever they want me to think of them. And I was thinking, I don't want my brain to think anything of them unless we're actually in the room together or at a coffee shop together. And that's because I do think my brain is taking up space towards somebody that isn't real. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. It's interesting to think about it that way. I think you can look at both sides of it. There's that side of it. And I think there's the side of it that, oh, you know, I get to, I get to see what this, per- yeah, the whole idea that the, the person's painting a picture of themselves and what they want to feel and how they want you to experience them and whatever they're sharing. Yeah. I mean, in person, yeah, people do the same stuff. It's just not the same amplific- amplification. I mean, you, people manipulate what they say all the time and they do it in real life and in person too. They paint a picture. They, they do all that stuff. And it's just a different type of amplification when it comes to these devices and reading it, seeing a picture, just seeing a little video. And the way everybody does their own thing is interesting too, because they're all making choices to communicate in whatever they feel like communicating. And I'm doing the same thing when I'm posting up there. And I just told you what my intention is when I post stuff. It's to share stuff that I think my kids might be interested in when they look at my feed or when they grow up and want to remember something about their parents. Like that is literally what my MO is. I wonder, I'm sure on this podcast, you've asked people what their motivation is for posting stuff. I'd be curious as to what answers people say, because I'm sure everybody, if they thought about what their MO is, maybe some people haven't even thought about it. And as far as the people that you, I, sorry, one last point that I choose to connect with or respond to in my feed, because again, I'm, I'm curating my feed just like I'm curating what I'm posting, which is, we could talk about that probably for an hour, how people curate their feeds. And I have specific criteria there too. So when I'm curating my feed, I'm usually only seeing stuff from people that I actually chose to see stuff from. But the choice that you're making goes another level deeper, which I totally respect. And it's very interesting, which is not to choose to have any kind of space in your brain or emotions occupied by people that don't fit your criteria, which is that you want to be with them in person. And I respect that. Yeah, it's a strange... I don't think it's strange. I mean, I respect it. I haven't thought about it that deeply. Well, it's it's... You know, it's complicated because I have people that follow me that I don't know personally, and and I am trying to build, you know, and we could talk about this too, just to me, the impact of Spotify 
on the creative culture is far greater than, again, anybody wants to even think about because they they love this idea of getting something for free. It's just, I think about, and you know, you and I were making records in our 20s when Napster came along, yep. or maybe around 30, or just somewhere between 26 and probably 36. Napster comes along, and then I, I start thinking, why? And why am I doing this after a while if people don't even want to pay for music? Yeah. And I started DJing about six years ago because for whatever reason, and I, you know, I love being creative. It's, it's amazing. It's something that I have to have in my life and it's, it's evolving and changing. And this, there's a creative aspect to doing a podcast and writing a book. And I think I need that part of me satisfied. So I, about six, seven years ago, after I released my last album, I, I think arrived at a crossroads emotionally and creatively where I'm thinking, well, I can't do this till I'm, first of all, people aren't paying for music and, you know, people who don't know will say, oh, well, you should just tour or, you know, get in a van and tour and people are clueless. I mean, that's still thousands and thousands of dollars. Yeah. It's a time waster because you're emailing venues i mean the whole industry is fucked yeah people i mean people put a lot of work into making things and yeah the idea of people not wanting to pay for those things that's a big that's a change in the way that people consume art there was a thing this is probably like 10 years 10 years old now there was this thing just called it's called Letter to Emily White. Do you do you recall this from no. NPR? Emily White at the time, and I'm gonna I'm gonna muck up the facts around this, but if you look it up on the internet, you'll find you'll find this blog post. And it was an intern who asked the question, you know, I I don't understand why people need to pay for music. Like I feel like it's the right thing to do, but she really was asking an innocent question about why people should pay for that because she's part of a culture that was post Napster where they're just accustomed to not paying for it at that point. But she felt there was something wrong with it and couldn't articulate what it was. So she put this question out there and got an answer. And the answer was this really lengthy blog and I'm forgetting who the person that wrote it was, but it's very compelling to read and it's timeless because it talks, it's this person trying to give this, young lady perspective on why people should pay for music because and it comes down to the service that these musicians are providing to the public to entertain them like that's the basic premise of it and what they have to go through to actually do that and make that happen and if you're somebody that actually wants to consume what they have you should pay for it that's yeah. like the backbone of it but he writes it in this really really great um responsive way well, I think that is a result of, you know, what happened with Napster. It just and it's trickling down to movies. People don't want to pay for art anymore. They don't. I mean, when I look at my royalty statements now that I get, <laughs> there are line items on there for the, these streaming stations where I've had like some production music that's ended up on Spotify or it's ended up on Amazon's streaming thing through prime or whatever it is. And it'll have like 50,000 streams of some like track. Right. And the pay for that will be like 14 cents. 
And it's just, I, the first thought that goes through my mind is, well, how do they even come up with that? Like, it just like scrambles my brain because there's other stuff on there, you know, cable TV and a few network things here and there and a film score in Australia and this kind of thing where it'll at least be like a few hundred dollars. It'll be like something, you know, but this idea of 50,000 instances of a stream track and it paying 14 cents it's just, it, it's when I talk to people about that, it, it, they always bring up, well, this is kind of what happened with cable, like back in the day, you know, when cable was around or came onto the scene, they had to kind of reinvent this whole model in, of paying artists for music that was being used in these cable shows. Right. And it took a while. Like there was these um, uh, hearings in, in Congress went on for a while. And then at some point they finally came up with a blanket licensing uh, model to get artists compensated for the work that was being used in these cable stations. And they got, you got, you got some retroactive payments for that. And then from that point forward, it was more solidified and that's just the way it was. And it kind of dictated how companies who were producing content were, you know, they had to make a decision of whether they want to pay for the content that they're using. Uh, Now, these days you still have to pay for content to be used and stuff that people are going to consume. Like you can still license music and you can still do all these things. There's still payment for that. But this streaming thing and this subscription services is like a whole other thing that is just not, there's like no, it's like the wild West again, all over again. It seems like, and if, if Spotify, here's, what's really interesting. And again, I'm, I'm pontificating and I don't have the facts, but I would gather that if Spotify had to pay for all those instances of plays of just, Blue collar production music composer Evan Beagle's stuff—they'd go out of business. Like, how could they afford to pay for fifty thousand instances of this track for people to consume? They—they yeah. they wouldn't be able to survive. So, it's really a strange thing, and there isn't a model that works. And you've got artists left and right pulling their stuff off. And you know, I don't look if if my publishers. They own the they own the stuff. So if they want to have it available on Spotify, that's great because they're probably making you know enough money off of it elsewhere, and it's fueling their business model. But I'm conflicted by it too because it's like, should these people even be allowed to be doing business like this? Because really, the publishers can say no to this stuff. Like they can pull it all down. Yeah. So are they happy with its marketing effects? Like why are they? Why do the publishers of this, why are they okay with the existence of this business model in its current form? That's the part that I really don't understand. It doesn't make any sense to me. I'm completely perplexed by um, Netflix and there's too much space and now Apple Plus, Amazon Prime. And I... Well, that stuff I actually understand a little bit better than, than Spotify because that content... Movies, TV shows, whatnot, they're investing a lot of money to make stuff. Now, will there be like critical mass and there'll just be too much stuff and not enough people to watch it? And it's still kind of playing out as to how people are going to choose their their content, their subscription services. Are they going to choose Apple Plus? Are they going to have that in Disney Plus and Netflix all at the same time, plus their prime? What's cool about it is that people get to pick and choose now. Like you don't have to pay for something you're never going to use. You can actually choose what you're willing to pay for. Like I like that aspect of that. That doesn't exist in music, by the way. I mean, you you pay a premium subscription on Spotify and you get every song that was ever written in the history of I'm I'm being facetious. Yeah. But it's 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 a little bit different, I think. And the math does work when you think about how many subscribers 
are um, subscribing to these streaming services and the cost to make this stuff. Here's my issue, and I guess this sort of goes back to my point a, a little bit. You know, we as artists are searching for all these ways to make a living and create something cool that people will consume. And I don't know if Netflix... I mean, I know they'll bring over the guy that made American Horror Story and they Ava DuVernay created When They See Us. And, you know, there's the Aaron Hernandez documentary. Uh, it seems to be excellent. Very well done. No I question. just don't know if there's... I, I rarely watch a show on Netflix that really blows blows me away. I mean, I think they're more concerned about quantity than quality. There's too much... It can't all possibly be good. I don't. I don't know. I, I'm. I'm confused by Netflix's model and Apple Plus and everybody. I, it takes time. I don't know. Do you know what my point is? Yeah, but I think they're. They are. It's. I think there's too much content for any one person to wrap their head around and consume, and that's part of what the problem is. But not everybody's choosing the same content, so. I have to believe that because they're doing it, it's the model is either profitable or is going to be, or they're project. It is a business. So they, I don't know how it's working, but I can see that since people don't consume the same content and there's something for everybody to consume on there and they pay, but everybody pays the same subscription fee for that. The value's just got to be there. And if you or I can't understand how there could be so much content to be consumed, I think it's simply because you and I can't consume all that content. We don't. But we choose to pay whatever that price is for the content that we are consuming. And all I'm suggesting is that that math obviously works out for them somehow and works out for the people who are working on the stuff. Now in music, and I would venture to guess in all creative areas where the idea of getting paid to create something for your art is is something that you're striving towards. I think part of the whole problem with why music has imploded as an industry for a lot of people is because people were agreeing to do stuff for nothing. And it's back to this accountability piece. And You mean just, like the artists and musicians? Yes. Were? Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you, but I felt like... Did they have a choice? Well, yeah. The, I mean, people, I made a choice based yeah. on that. Like a 30-second commercial back when I was in my 20s, if you got it to go final, you did a bunch of demos, and if you got one of those commercials to go final, for 30 seconds, you made like 30 grand cash, like up front. Yeah. When I got out of the business, that was like 3500 bucks if you were lucky. And to my knowledge, that money... It didn't stop with, it, it didn't, the money that was being paid to whoever was paying out that $3,500, like it didn't get any less. I know that. What happened is the people that were actually making the stuff, myself included, were agreeing to take less and less money over time to do the same thing. And because mm -hmm. of that, you have this race to the bottom it happens in retail all the time. Like it's, it's just a thing that happens. It's like people agree to do stuff for less. And next thing you know, that's the market for what you're doing. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And I think to, to a certain degree, we are guilty of that. Now that has nothing to do with necessarily whether like a Spotify can get away with paying 
uh, some fraction of a penny for some number of streams on their platform, people are still agreeing to allow their work to be on there. I mean, it's free. I, I mean, it's a free country. Anybody can, or it's a free society in that regard. Anybody can choose to just pull their stuff off of Spotify and people have, but that is a bit of a conundrum because if you're somebody who is thinking about making a living as a composer, let's say, or as a producer of tracks, you're probably going to think a little bit differently about your chances of being able to successfully make a living when you're faced with these realities. So more people are going to just choose to do other things. And the effect that that's going to have on creativity, I believe, is already happening, which is that the quality of stuff that is available and out there starts to head downward, a different kind of race to the bottom. Well, that's the theme. That's the theme of my show. Um, really, I do sense a downward creative trend and even just being a writer to, to be a freelance writer is more impossible now than ever because subscriptions to the New York times are going down. Newspapers are shutting down because people are just staying. They don't want the actual newspaper mail to their house anymore. They just will stay at home and watch the digital version. All of these things that are happening do have an impact and people I think are so self-absorbed and, and kind of lazy. They love to just sit on their couch and have the option to stare at Netflix all day or hold their iPad where they can get like 50 books or just stay. It, it does to me, it's affecting the creators. don't really think about the result of how technology is making people lazier. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. And then I think artists are the sort of the first level of people that are getting uh, affected the most. It's, it's complicated, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't know how to compare like how, who's, getting affected more than else. I mean, anyone else, I mean, it's their people are being affected differently. Both I think have adverse consequences, like the way people are being affected. I agree is adverse in a lot of ways, but it goes back to, they're also making those choices to allow that to happen. So I still, I just don't want it to be a world where people aren't accountable for what's occurring, even if it is a self fulfilling prophecy. So the message that I try to instill with my kids, I mean, I have a nine year old, so we can only, can only relate so much to (laughs) this, this concept, but my 14 year old, I'm really actively taking a role in helping him understand how important some of the things that he's doing and wants to do are, and not to lose sight of that because you're distracted by consuming content, media. Well, let me try and make another point and see if it connects. I've just... To me, the cream rose to the crop. Is that... Um, rose to the top? Rose to the top. Yeah. Yeah, that's much more difficult for that to and happen the, these days. Yeah, but to me, you know, think of a pyramid and think of like Robert Plant being at the top. And there was a, it, was, it took a certain amount of work and effort to get to that top. And to me, HBO was the top and still is the top. I just think, 
you know, succession to me is, you know, like the cream of the crop. You don't get better than that as a television show. I haven't watched it, so oh, yeah. gotta see it. Okay, I'll no, I'll take that. I didn't yeah. know what he. I see. Uh, I didn't even know it existed, so, but I'm gonna watch it. So great, it's gonna blow your mind. To me, the pyramid is like switched over now, thanks to Netflix, because I don't. Some I can't, I can't prove this right now, but somehow, when you only had a few places to show your television show, it had to be that fucking good. Yes. To get on NBC, like Cheers had to be that good or else it would easily get replaced. Yes. The truly talented individual or group or. Right. Okay. So, so to me yeah. that, that to be that great, you don't have to be that great anymore because there's so much available space, which is kind of cool on one hand, but. I don't think you have to, I don't think people have to work as hard or be as talented to fill that space now. And that's what I, that's why when I see a show like Succession come around that actually blows my mind, like that doesn't happen anymore or as often because Netflix and Amazon Prime, they just, they have to fill space and they'll do whatever they can to fill space. And people aren't as, Discerning? Yes, discerning to even notice if something is really that good or bad anymore. To me, it's like... Well, yeah, the bar, it's about that bar. I mean, that is, um, that's an interesting one in of itself. So my students used to ask me when I was teaching um, audio engineering, like, how do you how do you get your stuff to sound like stuff that's on the radio? It's like the age old question. Right. Or how come my beats don't sound like what I hear, you know, on the radio? How come they're not punchy? How come they're not as interesting and all these things. And I would tell them that, well, one of the most important things you can do to make it possible for yourself to get there is to work with somebody who knows how to do that stuff. So you understand what their process is and, how they go about doing things and the choices that they make and how it gets from point A to point B, because if you don't, you're ultimately guessing and not everybody gets the opportunity to do that. So what do you tell somebody that's not going to have the opportunity to be in a room with like a platinum level beat maker, for example, you tell them to use references and to listen to stuff that is professional and try to emulate how it sounds and just keep doing that over and over again and make sure you always have a reference so you're not shooting blank. So these are the things that I would, I would tell my students and it would give them something to hang their hat on. So they weren't just like in a vacuum trying to create something from nothing, which is very difficult. They had some sort of reference point. Hmm. So I think that knowing where the bar is, is a big uh, piece of how to make stuff good. And if the bar gets lowered, then that's going to be your bar and that's going to be adequate and humans can be lazy by nature and will most of the time only work as hard as needed to get the job done. (laughs) There was this, there was this guy who was a client and I can't remember his name. And he was talking about working with some producer who, who said uh, another one of my favorite sayings, even though I can't remember who said it. The last 10% of any creative project is the toughest. Like anybody can get it mm. to like 90%. But to get it from 90 to 100, it's like the whole good to great concept. Like to get it from good to great is really, really difficult. And a lot of times people stop before 
making it great. They settle, give up, tire out, burn out, you name it. Like the project stops or whatever creative piece they're working on stops at that point. And they just deem it as done because at some point they convince themselves that that's as good as it's going to be. And it doesn't get to a hundred percent, even in their own mind. Like they, they won't say it, but they'll know in the back of their mind that they've, there's something that they've given up on in that process or they've convinced themselves is the end. So that whole 90% good to great, that's, that's key to making stuff that people at, at mass are going to appreciate at a level that you appreciate succession, for example, or that I appreciate game of Thrones, for example, you know, that's, it's probably the best show for the most part that I've watched in my lifetime. And there's a lot of stuff that I haven't seen, but I can think of some other really great pieces of content that are memorable and that will move me. And the ones that are not memorable, like, some of these things on Netflix, for example, like I didn't make it all the way through the haunting of Hill House. Yeah, but I wa- I watched like the I mean the first six episodes, and there were moments in there where I thought it was pretty good. But at some point, I just decided to stop watching it because it obviously wasn't good enough. But it's not like I wasted any time or energy thinking about that. I just kind of moved on to the next thing because again, for somebody like me, it's about it's just about having enough time. And if I get to watch an episode of something, I have to kind of be choosy because I don't have that much time. But I 100% agree with you that there's a lot of content out there that's just not very valuable and it is filling up space. And that's a shame. And when you got people out there like Martin Scorsese, you know, bumming because his picture can only be in the movie theater for a very short period of time. Right. Forget what you want. Forget what people think. I mean, certain people thought that The Irishman was great. Other people didn't like it. People thought it was too long, this and that. I was forgetting all that. But when the maker of that film is saying publicly that there's no more cinema and people are not willing to go to a theater to consume stuff because they know they can sit in the comfort of their home and consume it there, the medium has changed for these artists. And he's not happy about that. Obviously, like he thinks there's something wrong with that. He thinks there's a shift from being able to make something that's going to show on the big screen where he has a captive audience and somebody sitting there that's paid money to sit in that seat and watch it in a committed sort of way. Yeah, that is, it's going away. You know, I'm I'm hoping that HBO doesn't release all of their episodes at once. I'm hoping that they still release them one at a time. I have a bad sense that that's going to go away because I think that does force higher quality. Yeah. I think it it creates a different mindset as the creator to create something that sort of exists on its own as opposed to creating something that is leading them to the next agree i mean i don't know i i I agree it's anticipation and you you know you go to your job and you spend a week talking to people about the show and now you can't even do that anymore because you've watched eight episodes binge watched over the weekend or whatever it is, you've watched all eight episodes and now there's no more conversations from week to week about the show. There's kind of, Oh, did you watch it yet? Oh yeah. Cool. Did you like it? Yeah. Great. But when you try to recall like what happened in episode two, four or five, it's all that blur. Kind of, it's a blur. Yeah. And those shows may be even better than we think they are, but the way that they're being presented is almost making it 
like it's doing those shows themselves a disservice, just like you pointed out, it's doing the creators a disservice as well. And that anticipation factor, the chance to digest what you've consumed and talk to people, talk to your friends about it. These were conversations we were having. So all of this change in the way the arts are, like I still, when I watch stuff, I still think great things. I, I think, you know, there's a lot of talent in the way that some of this content is put together. And when I consume certain things, I enjoy them. I, all that stuff is the same, but stuff's getting less memorable. <laughs> this is really funny. What I, I was, I was thinking about this when you were talking, I'm going to go up off what I was going to say for a second. And I w- I'm, I'm wanting to share with my oldest son, some of what I thought was great filmmaking as as I was growing up and as a kid and as he's getting older, I'm wanting to show him like these old R rated movies, for example, and I'll show him, you know, a movie and we'll watch it together and he'll really enjoy it, but I'll be watching it. I'll be like, this isn't as good as I remembered it. And it's weird because when I think about the impact some of these films had at that time, like the Terminator, here's, here's a perfect example. Like when the Terminator came out, it was groundbreaking in so many ways. And nobody had ever seen a movie like that. Nobody was captivated in an action, horrific film in a way, you know, in that sort of combo. And the whole thing was just such a moving classic. And people talked about how they had nightmares and how they thought about it for weeks and all this stuff. And I'm like watching this thing with my son and he's having a decent reaction to it. But even he could tell that it wasn't quite up to what his expectations were, but he still enjoyed watching it. So that was really interesting to, to, and then it made me think of my parents and how they would want me to watch these black and white movies because they thought they were so great and I'd watch them and I'd just be bored. I didn't, couldn't get the appreciation from them. And so as we've transitioned generationally, I feel like there's been degrees of this, what we're talking about all, all along, but it's just the amplification of it now is what's different. And the idea of like a blockbuster film, you think of the term, it's because there was a line around the block. That's why they call it a blockbuster. I mean, the idea of that, like standing in line to see a movie, I know people do it for Star Wars maybe and whatnot, which by the way, oh my God, so terrible. Like I just can't get over how bad these Star Wars films have become. But that's my point. I don't know if people really can tell that or they're scared to say that something's bad now maybe it's strange people are scared to say things sometimes nowadays <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yes yes yeah that it, that could be true my son walked out of the star wars movie this most recent one i saw it with him and his grandpa we were in tucson arizona and we saw it in one of those theaters now where they have those really nice seats with the cup holders and they recline and everything really great experience yeah watching a movie you're still like committed to watching it, but you're just a lot more comfortable. And I really like what they've done with those types of theaters. But anyway, I was just like, I was afraid to tell my son how much I didn't like it. So I just gave him that. It was, it was okay. Yeah. I enjoyed it. I was entertained, but he just knew he's like, really? And I'm like, you liked it? He was like, Oh yeah. And he, you know, he was, he was like raving about it. And a couple days go by and I'm having a conversation with somebody else. And a little bit more of my feelings about the movie come out. And, it was amazing because he apparently had started hearing from other people kind of similar stuff that I was saying about the movie, this benign sort of, it was okay. And like that kind of thing. So his perception kind of started to change a little bit about it. And then he started asking questions, more specific questions about what I didn't like. He's like, what, you didn't like the characters? And that like opened up more conversation because somebody must've said, 
in some other conversation he was having, like at school or something, that somebody didn't like the character. So it put it in his mind that he, um, his perception of the quality of the characters wasn't really coming into play in the way he was thinking about how he, how he enjoyed the film. But it was really obvious when he started thinking about that concept, he started to think less of the movie. Hmm. And now when he watches something, he talks about the quality of the characters. So what's amazing to me in this whole process is that he's been in his thinking, he's, he's learning, like he's learning, like what makes things good, what is not good. And now he's going to form opinions based on the more information he has of what to pay attention to. And this can go both ways. Like you get somebody who works on a film and you try to watch a movie with them. It's a nightmare because they start talking about things that you just don't care about yeah. the editing or the, this right. thing, or right. this went on for too long. It's just when I, when I'm around somebody like that, I can't watch a movie with them because I just want to just be entertained and, and take yeah. and take it in. But that's the other side of becoming too critical over consumption is that you're not allowing yourself to take it in because you're paying attention to the myopic aspects. Well, they're not myopic. Everything matters, but the, you're in the minutia. What's groundbreaking now? Like what's groundbreaking now? I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, the iPhone coming out. I'm thinking about Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, sticking with the movie theme and, um, you know, okay. Computer groundbreaking, uh, sea change. I mean, the wall. I mean, I, I don't know. That's, and I think, you know, even just musically speaking, people are releasing singles as opposed to records now, because I feel like you're the, the biggest thing, the biggest challenge is being forgotten, getting your attention. You know, Tame Impala was one of my favorite newer bands, and, and now the music they put out, I just think is really mediocre. Yeah. I don't know if people are seeing, you know, it's easy for people to say, oh, I'm just being negative, I'm just complaining. But I do think as an artist, we are inspired when we see something great. Yeah, when you experience something groundbreaking. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know what, you know, what's, has your son or have, what's been groundbreaking for you or, or, you know, what has blown your son away or blown you away the last couple of years? Is it even possible anymore? Because we're just getting so much and we're so numb. It's rare that something's going to stand out anymore. I agree with that. It's tough to find stuff that's groundbreaking particularly artistically. I mean, if you asked me what music that's like out right now, I thought was groundbreaking, I wouldn't be able to give you a single answer. I mean, I'd still have to like call out some band that's been around for 20 or 30 years that, and maybe they're not even making anything groundbreaking anymore. Maybe they're not making anything anymore, period. But it's hard to find something these days that is truly groundbreaking, particularly in the arts. What's the best movie that I've seen lately? And was it groundbreaking? There's a lot of stuff I haven't seen that I hear that I have to see. But if you ask me, like, name one movie in the last year, probably the best movie I've seen is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. So, and is it groundbreaking? Well, I think what Quentin Tarantino has done in the movies is groundbreaking. And I think he continues to evolve as a filmmaker. I think the acting in that movie is at the highest possible level that it can be. Totally. And so, yeah, it's, you know, I, I find that if I had to put that in what something that's great, that definitely goes in that bucket. I think what Elon Musk is doing in the space of battery scaling, electric vehicle scaling, things he's trying to do to make the world a better place, I think he's doing things that are groundbreaking. And because of that, I idolize him. Mm. And then... If you go outside the business world, sports still has 
groundbreaking performances in it, which is great. But when you consider a sport like basketball and what it is now compared to what it was when I was growing up, and again, I don't know if this is the phenomenon of thinking a movie back then was great and then watching it again, and it really isn't. I don't know. Am I going to turn on like some old Michael Jordan game, watch it and go, ah, it's not as great as I thought it was. I don't really know. I guess I'm open to that possibility, but the game was played differently back then. To me, there's like no question about it. There's things you could do back then that you just can't do in no. the league anymore. No. So it has to be a better version of what it is now, even though I haven't gone back and actually watched it. But yeah, even point being is that's it. There's, it's been, it's been softened in some way. Like there's there, it's not as edgy as it was. It's not as compelling as it was. And is that because there isn't a groundbreaking enough athlete in that context? Possibly. I mean, I think the fact that Tiger Woods came back and won the Masters, like that to me is groundbreaking. Like I was in tears. Like I couldn't believe that that was, that was possible. So there are groundbreaking things and there are groundbreaking things being made. It's just less of them because to your point, there's so much other stuff. There's so much noise that it's difficult to get visibility if you really have something. And if you find it difficult to get visibility as somebody wants to make things, you may end up choosing to do something else as a result of finding that difficult. So you probably got tons of people out there that could do groundbreaking stuff that have chosen not to play. And, you know, they want to, maybe they want to provide for the family and just focus on that. You know, for me as an artist, I have kind of compartmentalized my desire to do things that are creative for myself to, maybe later in life when I have more time. I mean, I, I don't know, but I've tried, I've had to work really hard to not feel sorry for myself or have guilt or feel like I've given up as an artist because I've chosen in this period of my life to really focus in on making a good living and make sure that I can get my kids through college because I've committed to that and I want to be able to do that. And if it's going to take me this much time to do something in order to do that and this much energy so that it does not provide for creative outlets, well, then it's up to me to try to find ways to have that outlet for myself. And I've done a pretty good job, particularly over the last couple of years of finding those things. I still have a lot of hobbies. I still make time to do things that make me happy. But the idea of sitting down and making an album, for example, I mean, that's daunting, (laughs) particularly at this part of my life. So my head goes to, well, I'm not going to do that for a living. So if I'm going to do that just to make myself happy, I'm going to have to make sure I have time to do such a thing. So maybe it's later in life. Or if I want to write some serious piece of chamber music, maybe that's got to be later in life because I know that it'll probably take me two or three years to make that happen. And I'm just not ready to make that commitment at the moment, given everything else that I have to do. Anything that's getting in the way of creation is having an is having an impact on quality. I know I sometimes sound a little negative, but is is anything making you feel hopeful? Well, yeah. I I mean, I have I have a lot of hope as to the evolution of society and civilization and maybe it's naive in a sense because, you know, we live in America and we're in a free society, and although we've got issues, it's still a free society. And so it's still better than having to live somewhere that isn't a free society. 
Now, do I have hope that creativity is going to improve to high levels and continue to evolve? I think it's, I not only hope that, but I, I have hope, not only do I have hope, but I, I expect that to happen. Like I, humans are very adaptable creatures. So this is where I get very idealistic. And I think that we are in transitional phases with our technologies and our platforms and our methods of communication. And I think that these things are going to normalize. Now, what that's going to look like, I have no idea, but I believe I have faith and I have hope that that's going to occur. And I think that'll have a positive impact, even though we may don't know what that looks like and we're not satisfied with what's happening with it right now. I definitely don't have like a doomsday perception over all of this or that it's going to lead to everything bad. Like I don't feel that way at all because I am hanging my hat on the fact that humans are adaptable creatures and things hit critical mass in all different kinds of ways and people are forced to make choices. I I mean, I just think about like my day-to-day now versus what my day-to-day was like 15 years ago and what my thoughts and priorities now versus what they were then. And do I miss things about then? Absolutely. Do I miss things that I feel like I could be doing now if I just had made a few little changes here, there, and there? Absolutely. I think about that stuff. But I'm really careful to pay attention to the things that are enjoyable about what I do day to day now and not make excuses to not enjoy it. So, for example, my day job. Some people might think what I do during the day is like, oh, you're working for the man, you're you're doing this, and oh, it's just like this capitalist sales gig and like this kind of thing, and it's the antithesis of creativity, or the exact opposite of sitting down and writing a book or writing a piece of music. And it is different than that, no question, but there's things about it that I really enjoy that keep me engaged, occupied, happy. And a lot of that is attributed to the people that I'm around and surrounded by. So I think your surroundings are really important to keep key point, regardless of what you're doing. And I still have hope that there will be a time where I can afford to be creative in the way that I envision Hmm. all the time. I have that vision in my head. There's things that I definitely want to do before I kick the bucket. And I just hope that I have the opportunity to do those things. But I'm also making sure that I spend time thinking about what I do have right now and what I'm engaged in right now and the benefits of that and the things that it would do for me if I'm thinking about myself like psychologically and fulfilling and fulfillment, that type of stuff. Because I used to be in a place where if I couldn't create something, I felt completely unfulfilled. That's changed. So Mm -hmm. because I've adapted to that, I feel like other people are going to adapt to their situational stuff and all of this stuff is going to normalize. But I, I think a key point that I made earlier is people have to be accountable for stuff. I, I just can't believe how many people like say things that aren't true and respond to things that they know are not true or are bad or not factual and they get all wrapped up in it. I just, that, that makes me have, that makes me more sad, more having a less, more of a pessimistic outlook when I see so much of that. But when I shut that off and look away, there's, there's, you know, there's a lot of great stuff going on. So it's like, you got this and you have that. So that's why I'm hopeful because you can get wrapped up in this over here if you don't like pay attention over here. But if you look over here, you'll see that over here is not paying attention to what's going on over here and just put more energy into what's over, over here. Yeah. 
that probably sounded really weird on a podcast because <laughs> no. I was like most of them, I was like pointing in different directions, but well, whoever's listening. I think, yeah, right. <laughs> I think I'll leave, I'll leave with this point that I'm just thinking and then we got to go. I just sometimes think people's, uh, I'm just, I'm slightly less hopeful because who knows what Amazon's intentions are. Um, Jeff Bezos's intentions are. I mean, I don't know what Mark Zuckerberg's intentions are. Is he actually killing people's souls? You know, um, because he's disrupted the way people communicate. I, I don't know. I, I And I think people right now are texting and driving and staring at Instagram. And that is going to affect somebody. Yeah. You know, and so... Bad choice. Yeah. And, and so you say, you know, people have a choice. And I agree with you. But what's going on right now, people feel like they have no choice, like they have to bring their phone with them everywhere they go. People feel like they have to respond to that text right now. People think these things. Yes. And that's where, to me, I get a little discouraged sometimes. And and. I think, you know, to bring it full circle, full circle to Kobe Bryant and on the show, I guess it was a reminder to me that, you know, I'm not in control and I can do whatever I want to try to be in control of as, as much as I can. But I'm realizing, you know, every day we come in contact with somebody new and we don't know if they just saw this saw this, almost got killed because they were texting while... I mean, we just don't know. We had this. We had a better grasp, I felt like, you know, 10, 15 years ago, of potentially what we were getting ourselves into. And it just feels like those basic norms are just going away. And that's, that's where I get, I get scared sometimes, thinking about it. I agree. It's scary to think about. There is, um, there are writings uh, by this author Albert Camus. Have you ever heard of Albert sure, Camus? Yeah, yeah. I read him in college. Yeah, yeah. Reading it as an adult is um, probably a lot different. Yeah, yeah. So I believe I read one of the things that I read recently in, in college or high school as well. But it's it's a lot different reading it now. But it's really amazing how somebody like at that time was having these exact thoughts and rationalizing them in his philosophical writings and essays, because this is exactly what he's talking about, this idea of control and how we don't have any, and we think everything we're doing has intention, but the world is, it's going to exist in spite of us. And that's just, that's makes everything that we do essentially a crapshoot in a weird way. And we're so focused on being intentional around things and this idea that we can make a choice, like you're pointing out, like, yes, I'm saying that we have a choice at the same time we make choices, but it could still go bad. Like it's, it's really, it really is. I think the word he used was absurd because it is the definition of absurdity because it's like, it's a predicament. He also referred to it as a predicament because we're in this predicament where we think we can do these things and it just doesn't matter. Like none of it matters. Like Kobe Bryant can accomplish all these things. And now he's gone. And in some amount of years, he'll be statistic and remembered to a degree, 
but not to the degree that we're remembering them in the last three, four days. I mean, it's like, it's people are going to forget that. I mean, it's those, so that's a person did great things. Chipotle poisoned God knows how many people with their food, with their bad food. And I remember listening to financial news about it and they're like, yeah, in 18 months, people are going to forget. It's going to be fine. And it was, yeah. people have forgotten and it's fine. It's like, it just, every, it, stuff just continues. Yeah. And when people who are close to you pass away, it's like this, all, it, it all washes away. Like all of their, everything that they were, their whole essence is gone. And you go through this process of mourning and getting rid of their things. And, you know, I'm getting to the age where, you know, my parents are not healthy anymore. And it's just a matter of time where, I'm going to go through this thing and I'm already starting to go through it. Like, you can already see it coming on. And this isn't even like unexpected death, you know, like a Kobe Bryant scenario or your best friend gets into a car accident. This is like, you could, you see this freight train coming at you and how you're going to navigate it, but that's going to pass and everything's going to go by. And if we're still alive, we're going to continue on with our lives and trying to live every day. And then all you can do is the best you can every day. Yeah. It's weird. I do like, you know, I exercise six days a week. And I drink alkaline water every day now, and I take my vitamins, and I try to sleep well, and you know, you're trying to do the best you can doing, every day. Yes, I'm. I'm navigating that right now. You know, I, I think the combination of having a couple of guests ago, I had a guy who's 28 and he was diagnosed with lymphoma, and he exercises all the time, and he swam collegiately in Philadelphia and, and, you know, we do all these things and, and it, it doesn't even matter. And I, I, I know in my day to day life, I feel better doing these things. So I guess in that sense, it does matter, but I guess I know that there's still somebody or something that is in more control than I am. Absolutely. We are specks of dust floating through space. Yeah. That's, you know, it's tough to reconcile that. And it's, understanding mortality and when Kobe Bryant gets killed on a helicopter and nobody's expecting it just makes us think about our mortality because just like that it could be over and yeah I invest tons of money that I could be spending on entertainment or going on fancy trips but instead you know instead I spend hundreds of dollars a month on vitamins join an expensive gym. I mean, I, I, I spend all this money to keep myself being able to function primarily so that I could feel good when I'm working all these hours and that I can provide and have strength for my family and all that stuff. I mean, I have to, can't let myself burn out. So that's why I do it. And yeah, I get the benefit of feeling good when I go into work every day after starting the day at the gym, it's a whole different mindset, but I could drive home that night and that could be the end of my life. Yeah. But you pointed out the most key point, which is why it's important not to think too far in the future and to stay in the present. It's because if you're going to feel good now, you are getting a benefit. And I'd rather feel like I do now than how I felt when I wasn't doing these things. Yeah. I thought it was really good advice to not look too far into the future. My dad mentioned it. He would say, I don't like thinking too far in the future because I would ask him when I was younger about my future. And his advice was, you know, you just got to do the best you can every day and try not to think too far in the future. And I understand what he means now by that, even though then I didn't really understand because all I could think about was, well, how am I going to make the next buck or how am I going to pay my rent or, you know, how am I going to get to this place or that place or how am I going to do this or that? Or when it came time to getting like a 
corporate job? How am I going to find a job? You know, this kind of stuff. It's like you just have to do the best you can every day. And I really hang my hat on that advice and the advice I got from a coworker a few years back, which was something I mentioned earlier in the talk, which was that is what you're doing right now is the choice you're making right now in alignment with your goals. Hmm. So all those people on social media who are choosing to proliferate stuff that's not factual, stuff that you know they don't have the facts on, but they're choosing to, I mean, it's, it's like this, I'm going to exercise my right to free speech. I'm going to make sure that everybody knows how I feel because that's my freedom to do so. And then they put that stuff out there and they don't think about whether what they're putting out there is actually true. It's just about satisfying some urge and I don't really understand what that is. And that's the part where I get a little depressed about how people behave. And I just wish they would have more accountability and choose not to do that and choose to post pictures of their family, you know, or they're hanging out with their buddies or playing cards or all this stuff. But it gets into all this. And now this is my forum to be heard on all my political thoughts or how much I can't stand how this rock star behaved or, you know, it's like a venting tool. Whereas before there was social media, people would vent to each other. So again, it's about amplification. Like it's like amplified now. So now everybody has to hear about it. And now people, they eat that up. So now they feel like they have a forum for everybody to hear about it. And that makes them feel good. But as the person who has to read it, that does not make me feel good. So I have to actively choose to shut that off. But I wish that people, and this might be naive, I wish people would not choose to do that. So it goes back yeah. to you saying people just can think they can say whatever they want. Well, they can for the most part. It's just well, amplified. And the discretionary aspect of it is gone because it's like, oh, I'll just post this. If they don't want to listen to me, they can just mute me or they can just unfriend me and that kind of and people think like that and they even say it like explicitly in their social media feeds yeah i'm gonna say this they say and if you want to unfriend me go ahead and unfriend me like whenever i see that i unfriend them because it's like <laughs> oh here's a person that's like just this person doesn't get it so it's like and that's judgmental of me to say you know they could say that i don't get it and that i we need to amplify these things because that's what's going to create change like you get that too like i can change the way everybody wants to vote in the election if i post my dissatisfaction for this candidate or this candidate or my satisfaction for this candidate this candidate so now i'm a lobbyist it's like oh my lobbying is mm. going to influence all these all these people it's just that's the part of social media that i really can't stand but i've muted all that stuff out of my I've curated sure. the content I'm consuming to avoid all that so that I can benefit from what I believe are benefits of social media well you, you gotta come back for round two in about a, about a year like once a year okay cool yeah, I'm down. I, I only talk to people now on a podcast I don't actually talk to people my day. So <laughs> it's, so, it's a good talk so yeah. there's probably more conversations than most people have you know so. I have to say it's been a life changing experience it's weird. Sure. It's crazy to, um, yeah. I mean, I don't want to bore people about it, but it's um, to be able to turn on a microphone and just turn off the phone and talk, and it it does create an intimacy that just it can't be. I mean, it obviously can be created in you know certain aspects, but 
it, it's it's a whole different it's a game changer when it comes to talking and, and maybe this is what it takes to get people maybe even myself to just not be distracted really listen and and get involved in somebody else's life it's it's been it's been a very rewarding experience so yeah i appreciate you driving over here and taking the time i had a sense that it would be a really good talk i had a sense that it would go beyond just Kobe bryant so it, it means a lot that you came over here thanks for having me on the show eddie i i i these types of conversations are very engaging i enjoy talking about this stuff and sharing so thanks for having me on the show 